Hello there, my name is Sean Rakunis, and alongside with me is Mary Haddix and Hunter Sagona, and today we will be interviewing Professor Eugene Corporon about his musical selections. And right before we get to the interview, we will have a quick word from our friends at Anchor, and enjoy! All right, and we are recording, and Professor Corporon, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So excited to have you here. We haven't had a professor in a while. Um, always nervous, always nerve-wracking to have someone as your stature being here, um, but always very lucky and very happy to have you here on the show. Um, so thank you for being here again. Um, hopefully I won't say it enough, but I will say it many, many times today during this podcast. Um, and so today I thought we would start with one of your top picks, we're going to start with some Joni Mitchell, uh, specifically the album called The Hissing of Summer Lawns. And these guys are tired of hearing of it, but I'm uh, a DMA student at UConn. And recently, uh, within the last year, um, UConn has given Joni Mitchell a honorary degree for her uh, musical achievement, which is really cool. Great. Um, I wanted to ask you, how were you introduced to Joni? Well, I'm a, I was in school in the 60s. That's probably <laughs> all I need to say. Um, but uh, uh, everybody who heard her had a crush on her from uh, 1965 on. Um, and uh, I was in college specifically 65 to 69. Um, so it was just a part of the fabric of life. Um, I can't remember specifically the exact uh, moment I caught up with her, but in uh, but it was probably sometime just after high school, and um, I had a lot of friends who were folk musicians uh, while I was in school, and um, they they kind of kept me uh, informed about that whole tributary, you know, of music. And uh, she sang about the times. And uh, that was also pretty important at that time for those of us who were politically uh, interested. So um, I, I can't, uh, at, other than just in the 60s, late 60s, that's probably, or mid 60s. And and something that's interesting, and if you don't know who Joni Mitchell is, let me do a little bit of an interesting little bio for you. Roberta Joan Joni Mitchell CC is a Canadian American singer songwriter and painter, drawing from what Professor Corporon just mentioned: folk, pop, rock, classical, and jazz. Mitchell's songs often reflect on social and philosophical ideas, as well as her feelings about romance, womanhood, disillusionment and joy so when we take a look at this album which uh, came out in 1975 how would you describe her music uh, for those who might not really know her i think I, I i kind of threw out a couple of genres of music sure like bob dylan i i think she's a poet and mm -hmm. um uh tell and a storyteller and that album specifically uh seemed to me to be a more mature uh um, statement from her, uh, although I've enjoyed everything she's done, but it was, um, she really did uh, cross over as an artist and um, uh, between jazz, pop, rock, all of those things. 
and uh, um, I, I'm kind of a amalgam in my listening taste of all those things. So it made sense to me. Um, I got thinking about some of the things we'll talk about today, and it seems like I was uh, propelled forward by female um, uh, songs or moments in history. And it could just be that I'm, I'm a son of a single mom or something, and my mother was very, uh, uh, very active uh, trying to support me in, in my endeavors. And um, it left me with a deep respect for women who are uh, driven. And I've always felt that about Joni Mitchell. Uh, also somebody who, um, who's never satisfied with where they are, continuing working towards um, expanding their musical horizons and their musical uh, metaphors and their musical interactions uh, with great artists. I, I missed the chance to commission a piece for Wind Symphony and Joni Mitchell, but it was always in the back of my mind that maybe we could find something at, to get her to, to be a part of it. And I, it just never happened, but it was always a goal that didn't get completed. You know, I love, I love uh, improv and I love asking questions on a win. So in that same regard, what would a Joni Mitchell wind ensemble piece look like? Well, it would be a song cycle. And um, if I were commissioning her, I would say, um, I'd have to convince her of the instrumentation, of course, mm. um, and what, what we could offer and what we could add. I would assume we'd have to add a rhythm section uh, to do something with her. Um, but I would also uh, let her hear um, the extreme timbral diversity of a, of a wind band. Um, and in a sense, it's almost like a studio orchestra minus strings. And, uh, um, and then, it would just be whatever. I mean, it's what I do with any composer. What do you want to write? What what motivates you? Um, and we'll make it work. Um, I, beyond, I, I always like to just turn it over to the composer. Um, uh, we're, we're talking about this, and Andrew Traxel, my colleague and I are talking about this. We want to get Maria Schneider to write something for Wind Symphony. Too. I mean, there are these people out there who we envision could, could cross over and do some really interesting things. Um, and uh, that, that might even come from my work at, uh, with Stan Kenton and the Neophonic, Collegiate Neophonic Orchestra, that idea of uh, an amalgam of jazz and um, classical, and that that might be uh, something that could continue beyond say Rhapsody in Blue, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. uh, so I've been influenced by that since I was a freshman in college, I've been, uh, um, Kind of interested in those uh, outreaches. You know what's also interesting too is you mentioned the word timbre. It's also interesting to mention there is not really more a unique voice than Joni because Joni has such a presence. Um, and when I listen to all the songs that you, you you wanted me to listen to on this album, I noticed how Joni always has a way of really digging into the the listener, which and in a way I think is part of her uh, her vocal text. And I almost feel like she's talking rather than singing, which feels weird, but it adds to the aesthetic of the song, which I also think Dylan did too in that sort of same fashion. Yeah. What do you think about that? I think, I think that's a really good observation. Um, certain singers can make you feel like they're singing directly to you. 
and somehow they know your story, you know? And um, I, I can remember putting that, lots of her pieces on my, uh, putting my CD in my car and driving around Colorado. When I was working in Colorado, I had to, I had to drive some distances. And um, I would hate to, for instance, put on Hissing of Summer Lawns and have it interrupted. So I'd have to have a long enough drive to hear the whole thing. It's like if you put on a Beethoven symphony or, a, you know, something is 20 to 40 minutes long and you drive 10 minutes, it drives you nuts to get out of the car. You just, you know, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you get back in the car, your brain remembers where you were. Mm. I think that's always very interesting. You turn it back on and you go, yep, that's right where I was. Um, or you sing it when you get back in the car and you're right where you turned it off. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, I think, Camber is a big part of her voice too, um, which in, which interests me a lot in my own work uh, with wind bands. Um, I I really want to make sure people hear the whole group, and and not necessarily hear uh, survival of the loudest, but, but <laughs> you know the brass section can vote the woodwind section off off the island anytime they want. But what's great about that is a gong can vote the brass section off the island, one gong. So um, um, so it, that's always been part of my listening preferences, timbral differences. And of course her range and uh, the smokiness of her voice sometimes or the clarity of her voice are just, you know, really good stuff, I think. Right. I think the Yukon Wind Ensemble has also taught me that, that, you know, a lot of the times I hear the the, the uh, conductor go, mm, too much. And then I think the woodwinds are like, you know what? Mm, we don't really need the brass anymore. Um, so that that's always nice to hear from them. Um, but, you know, going back to the album, and I, I know this is a loaded question, and I wrote this out, and I thought it was more of an interesting question. But what do you think is her defining aspect of her musicianship? Is it her singing? Is it her creation of, of, of music? Is it her... Is it her drive, like you mentioned? Hmm. For me, for me, it's the poetry is so strong, the lyrics are so strong, right. and everything seems to be connected to um, what she's singing about at any point in time, and the risks she takes uh, to make those ideas memorable. Hmm have always been uh, interesting to me. Um, she has kind of a jazz approach in a way, which is, uh, you know, um, I'm going to go for it. Hopefully it's going to work. If it doesn't, so what? <laughs> you know, I mean, it has that feeling to it. It doesn't feel, um, it doesn't feel predetermined. You know, what's also interesting, too, is is just it, you know, listening to her music is is just so it's relaxing, but it's also passionate. Um, and I found that when I was listening to the whole album, I felt like I was able to study and do some other things while I was listening to it. Um, what would you say is the best way to listen to her music? Is it like you said, when you're driving, uh, maybe when you're on a walk? maybe when you're studying, when do you put it on? The, the only way I can listen to music is to listen to music. 
I mean, my wife gets really angry at me if I'm driving because if the tune slows down, I slow down. <laughs> <laughs> if it gets, if it's, you know, Vivace, I'm driving Vivace. So, I mean, it's, uh, I'll sometimes I'll be on the freeway going 45 because I'm mm. so into what I'm listening to. She doesn't want me to drive when I'm listening. Yeah, I, I'm not much of a background listener. Mm. And in fact, I can't listen to everybody else. When there's music on, that's where I go. And if I'm at a party and somebody's playing music, there's no way I'm going to even be able to carry on a conversation. I have, mm. to, I have to talk in the kitchen or something, because if I'm in the room with whoever's making music, I, my attention goes there immediately. Right. And um, sometimes I think I'm hard of hearing, but it's not that. It's my focus <laughs> is away from speak when music's on or, 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 um, or think or, you know, um, about anything other than what I'm hearing. Right. And uh, that goes with, for pop, rock, folk, uh, classical, wind bands, um, orchestras, choirs, whatever it is that's on. If I'm, I'm really uh, not capable of dividing my brain uh, into left-right function at the same time. Right. I'm reminded of a piece that I can't remember right now. I know it's called Cruise Control. But uh, <laughs> I can't remember if it's for one man or not, but it sounds like you might need to listen to cruise control when you drive. Professor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it also reminds me of when people always say, don't listen to Prokofia when you're driving because you go really fast yeah. and you kind of drive <laughs> past all the, all the stuff. Um, again, you know, I, this is what, this is what, this is such an interesting album. And I feel like a lot of the questions I asked were broad. Um, and, and it felt like it was it was going to be too specific. I was going to bring up one song, um, but you know, all the songs in in itself, I feel like encapsulate like a you know. And Hunter hates this word, but I say it too many times, like a Fabergé egg. But it's like it's like you can look at it and you can say, "Wow, this is just such something just totally unique and so different than anything else." And I also I really hope everything's okay with her lawn. And I hope that they find the snake that is in her lawn and they take it out of her, her right. lawn. And Mary's like, come on, move on. Okay. All right. So um, we're going to move on to some or, blood. blood or, and or go into Sorry. that living room and sit down on that Chippendale furniture. <laughs> I mean, isn't that a great line? A room full of furniture that nobody's – a room full of Chippendale that no one sits yeah. in. I mean, yeah. so typical. Right. Yeah. Moving right. to the suburbs. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Hunter. Hunter's got some blood, sweat, and tears. Hunter, he doesn't actually have those things, but he's going to talk about a song <laughs> that has those things. So, Hunter, take it away. Yes, that's okay. I, I just cry constantly. I have a lot of tears. Um, <laughs> so, for this one, um, I can't say that I was familiar with it prior to this. Um, my my musical uh, tastes being relatively limited. Um, well, Sort of, there some are rather obscure, but anyway, uh, <laughs> this particular song, uh, I thought it was a surprise, you know. And I, when I turned it on, I found it low, more low key than I thought it was going to be for the title of the band, which is very deceiving. Um, and so, and 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 you know, it has such an emotional middle section, and it does have this sort of crescendo at the end, um, but then it dies off in a very sort of quiet way. Um, for the song uh, Lonesome Susie. And 
I'm just curious, you know, this is a very quintessential sound of the 70s, and yet it's not the original version of this song. It's just this group's uh, rent, this group's cover of the song. Why did you choose this particular uh, arrangement? Is it because you like the group? Is it because you prefer, um, I guess that, that would be the biggest reason, I, I would assume. But uh, what, I'm just curious what you think. Well, um, I think it's an unbelievably good example of something that starts quiet, climaxes amazingly well, and then finishes again. And I've used it teaching conducting. Oh, have you? Yeah, in terms of having people understand uh, where you might start emotionally, where you might go, and how you might come back from there. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I've made, especially in the 70s and early 80s, I've made many a symposium group sit and listen to that tune. Um, because you, you can't get to the end of it and not feel something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was it. I mean, I felt like uh, uh, they, they tapped into the feeling of the, of the moment. And, and I guess I would say about all these tunes, we're spending a lot of time on these tunes. Um, and so I'm glad I thought a little more about it. But all these tunes that I picked that are um, uh, pop related, I hate to call them pop, but that are that are non uh classical wind band pieces have they i had to think more about it they um when mary asked me about them i very quickly threw these out and then i realized well why did i throw those out and i realized how much they've all influenced me in terms of mm-hmm. my own musical phrasing and and uh, musical work as has ella fitzgerald and louis armstrong and uh, benny goodman and buddy defranco and i mean it goes on and on and on um uh, but uh, they really um, seem to just capture this moment. You know, I'm back to storytelling, but to capture a moment. Now, with Joni, that was a whole album that did that. Did that. Right. With, with this piece, it's a short little piece. You know, I don't even remember the band plays much. You know, it's not uh, a whole lot. Yeah. And the quality of his voice, again, I think the timbre of his voice um in this uh is so grainy so sad so uh impacted that that i just felt it was a um, meaningful Mm -hmm. um i I like lots of little short pieces you know um i I think of uh um, guys and dolls my time of day is the nighttime (laughs) phrases in the musical right or four yeah not very long and again, almost a cappella, almost without the orchestra. And um, but it but it sets a scene, it sets a moment. And um, I'm interested in that in all music that I work with. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want to feel like it has some kind of um, beginning and end, and and that it has a, a moment. It, it makes for a memory or a moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and of course, you know there uh, when. When I was uh, growing up playing saxophone in, in uh, uh, rock bands, we played a lot of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We played a lot of Ray Charles, and we played a lot of Chicago. A li- Well, not a lot, because yeah. they, they didn't quite hit when I was in high school but um, or, or going into college. But um, but those kind of horn, what, 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 what Chicago calls horn bands. Right. You know? um, and uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Chicago, those all of those that had these great horns, uh, horn lines, uh, Ray Charles, 
um, uh, that always intrigued me at, as uh, you, know, you take really fine jazz musicians and put them into a rock kind of situation mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of a blend of both, you know. Um, right. And but that that's pretty much it. I, I think that I love the group, but I, that particular tune um, jumped out of my brain. I have what I call an eight ball brain. If, <laughs> Just you know, give it a shake. Yeah, you shake the eight ball and there's a little window on the top of it. And something comes to the top. And a lot of times more and more, I somebody will ask me a question. I have to shake the shake my brain and eventually an answer will rise to the surface there and I can read it and decide mm -hmm. what, what I think but um, that's funny but anyway i think that covers again isn't it interesting though the timbre of that is so what's a what's a good word shake the apron. dense yeah just just kind of uh, <laughs> wrenching you know it's kind of a wrenching uh situation it's not pretty by any means no, yeah. And yet at the same time, I always find, you know, the use of the, because you, you did mention the, the brass section uh, or the, the horn section. Uh, it's funny that by the 80s, a lot of a lot of bands that had horn sections, they, they all started to go away. Right. And it, it was like a brief moment where it, in the 70s where it was like, oh, yes, you know, bands used to have horn sections. Let's keep that for a little bit of time. And everyone loves the sound, but then by the next decade, we're just going to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's like, and I was, I, like you mentioned that the timbre of the, of this, of the, um, of the, the voice. song as a whole, I always liked that, you know, you mentioned Earth, Wind and Fire. I'm, I'm a fan of Earth, Wind and Fire. I know Sean is too. And uh, I always liked that sound, the way it was, you know, sort of combined with with the funk and the folk world and, it gave a very unique, very quintessential 70s sound to music, which it's very obvious to see that transition to the next decade because it just disappears. Well, and if you think about this, um, I went to school with Karen and Richard Carpenter. Did you really? Yeah. And Richard was my pianist. Really? Accompanist, my Find Me Alpha buddy, played my recitals for me some of the time. And we had a big band when I was in school, and Karen would sing with the band sometimes, and Richard play piano but actually at the time Karen Karen was playing drums quite a bit she's a great mm -hmm. drummer and so she would play drums sometimes and play and sing occasionally and Richard kept trying to convince her that she was a singer <laughs> and um she wanted to be a drummer and but but the interesting thing was you think about the music they made mm -hmm. the commercial music they made and my roommate was the clarinetist in that group at Doug Strawn um they made really uh pop almost got panned for it for the kind mm -hmm. of sound they made. but the group was was capable of playing any jazz artist you could mention dick could mm -hmm. play you could throw on you could throw someone at him and he could play in that style but he figured out what was pop what was going to be popular popular at the time and he used right. to say things like we're not nobody's going to come and hear us in new york city but he said when we go to japan we outsell the beatles really true oh yeah it's true. So, I mean, this I, that kind of music and then to be blasted forward by these groups we're talking about, what a huge change, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they had one tenor player and one clarinet player in, in, uh, in, the, in the Carpenters. And um, odd, I mean, clarinet, for gosh sakes. But um, uh, It's my instrument. Yeah, me too, and Doug's. So, uh, um, so, so you have this 
shift, this pretty quick shift. And of course, the Beatles had a lot to do with it too. I'll never forget going to conducting class, undergraduate conducting class, uh, with Frank Cooler, who's a choral uh, director there, and later was their road conductor too. Uh, Frank's tremendous musician. And I remember Dick coming to class and saying, uh, Dr. Pooler, could we take a break today and listen to the new Beatles album I brought up? <laughs> and he said, sure. So we didn't have conducting class that day. I think it was, it was the latest Beatles album. And it's, I mean, that was just happening, you know. That, and so you had um, this shift starting to go on. And, um, uh, and you're right. At, at the, I taught high school from 69 to 71, mm -hmm. right, right as the 70s began. And um, I had the jazz band and we did some Blood, Sweat and Tears. We did some Earth, Wind and Fire. We were doing some early uh, uh, charts that people in LA were, were stealing and writing for, <laughs> for high school jazz bands, you know. But uh, um, yeah, it was a huge shift, huge shift. It was, and then, you know, it's like as time went on, the, the genres became more and more sort of, uh, I don't want to say like separated, but you know, like now there's so many different genres. It's almost hard to tell what's what right. and everyone has a, a little pocket. They. Well, speaking of um, Mary, that is actually a good stepping off point because Mary is going to, take the next song, which is some Vincent um, Persichetti. Uh, so, Mary, if you'd like to take yeah. it away. Yeah, I liked that one. Good job, Hunter. <laughs> Thank you. I tried. I tried. Got to make it work. Yeah. So um, part of the reason that I wanted to do um, Parable 9 was, one, um, I mean, as a horn player, we have our own Persichetti parable, and it's, it's a pretty standard um, work as you get into... Um, some like graduate level horn work a lot of people end up playing it and one thing that comes around when we talk about our parable um is uh interpretation and that's one thing that professor corporal mentioned like as soon as he brought up parable nine um so um parable nine uh, just for some background um is a um it's a part of a set that Persichetti wrote. And each parable is for a different ensemble. I think the first one maybe is for flute and the second one's for brass quintet. And like I said, there's one for solo horn, but parable nine is for wind band. Technically, I think his opus uh, 131 or 121. Um, and, yeah, I think it's 121. Yeah. Um, but um, let's see. There are a lot of different um, things that take place during the parable, and I think that's something that Persichetti gets at with every parable he writes. It's like his brain kind of bounces around. So, uh, Professor, I wanted to touch on just for a moment, um, one thing that struck me the most was you, you mentioned um, the parable, and you said one reason that you wanted to put it on this list was because it was the first piece that you didn't really get until Persichetti worked on it with you. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so tell us a little bit, um, <laughs> if you could focus on, so first of all, your your personal impressions of what the parable was, and then what changed when you worked with Persichetti, if you wouldn't mind. 
No, I don't mind. Um, one, of, one of the most spectacular experiences in my life was to have uh, Vincent Persichetti in residence at the University of Wisconsin when I was teaching there for a week. I mean, I got yeah. to pick his brain for a week. And I'm sure he, he was so glad to go home because I had I, was, I had so many questions and can we have lunch? Can we have dinner? I was like, you know, uh, uh, fan struck having him around. And there isn't a nicer person that's ever been on the face of the earth. He was such a patient and wonderful person to be around. Um, I, I was very familiar with almost all of his music and uh, had struggled uh, with parable, as I mentioned to you, Mary, I had struggled with kind of how different it was from the other yes. things he'd written. And, uh, but in retrospect, when I look back now, I guess we could probably point to Persichetti's three biggest works for winds. They're all fantastic, but the symphony, mm -hmm. Masquerade for Band, mm -hmm. and Parable. And what I find, uh, what I began to realize was that um, Parable is Masquerade on steroids. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And it's it's an angrier masquerade. <laughs> but um but the 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 uh structure, architecture of the piece mm -hmm. is similar. Lots of cadenzas that link uh solo cadenzas, which makes sense because most of his parables are solo parables yes. for solo instruments, um, that link major sections. So uh, that happens in masquerade as well. Mm -hmm. And um uh but um, parable is more dissonant, more um, challenging to the ear than I think any of his other wind band pieces. I'd uh, agree there. Yeah, and and um, it, it's got some dark moments. He typecasts certain instruments as the evil doers. E flat clarinet, of course, are the evil doers. Poor E flat clarinet. <laughs> parable. The first lick they have is enough to scare you out of the front row of the of the concert hall. Yeah. Um, and uh, they just kind of, you know, get angry every now and then. But the piece, uh, um, while Masquerade was kind of a game he was playing, it was a Masquerade of his Harmony book. Um, and the examples in the Harmony book are what he used to write Masquerade. Uh, there's some wonderful analyses out there of, of uh, the piece. And actually we had him do Masquerade. I have a film of him and an old Sony reel-to-reel -reel film, which we've transferred, <laughs> of him rehearsing Masquerade, where he takes everybody step by step through each of the variants variations and um, talks about where they came from and why and and um, um, what what the point of it was. And so um, he was uh, very knowledgeable about 20th century music. He knew what everybody was doing, and in fact, his class at Juilliard. Um, uh, 20th century music or the materials of the 20th century composer was a must for everybody who was there. I mean, uh, what I hear from people, I mean, he, he, you left that class knowing so much about what every composer was doing. Mm -hmm. And he would often say, well, I don't choose to write like Stravinsky, but I know what he does. Here's what he does. I don't choose to write like Stockhausen, but here's what he's doing. Um, he, he, uh, he really would insist that his students, if they came up with a statement like, um, I don't like John Cage, <clears throat> say why. Yeah. Tell me why. Um, what is it about his music that what what bothers you? Well, to say why, you've got to know how. 
So mm -hmm. he would force them to to learn about the composers, even the ones they didn't want to imitate, his composing students, or or follow in the wake of. So um, so Parable is Persichetti at his most dissonant for band, and um, he described it as a struggle between good and evil. And the minute he said that, a light went on in my head, because I had said to him. Um, I just, you know, I don't get this. I feel very uncomfortable with some of this music. And he looked at me and kind of smiled and said, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> You're supposed to feel uncomfortable. This is not meant, that's funny. You know, this is not meant to make you uh, comfortable. Mm -hmm. it's, meant, it's meant to challenge you to, to, uh, to, to hear this dissonance and this uh, argument that's going on. And so, um, it was based on it's based on a cantus firmus. He used some very uh, old techniques uh, yeah. to make work, but uh, um, and he had a really good sense of it. Opens with very slow, dissonant, tough music to listen to, and it takes a while to get through that. But he has a good sense of when it starts to be uh, enough and moves you on to more. Um, uh, energized or, or um, faster tempos that uh, keep you involved and give you contrast. Mm -hmm. um, this is an interesting piece because I explained this once to, I'm trying to remember where it was I did, I think it was at Northern Colorado. I've done it everywhere that I've been. And I had a student come up to me after I explained it and say, I can't play this piece yeah. because my church, uh, wouldn't allow me to play a piece where evil wins out over good. And I said, evil doesn't win out over good. You see that D major chord at the end? And that's what Persichetti explained to me. He says, that oh. bright, beautiful major chord is what wins. And that's good. And I tried to explain that to her. She wouldn't buy it. She didn't play it. <laughs> I said, that's, <laughs> that's okay. Funny. I understand. You, you're perfectly, it's okay. We'll find someone else to play your part. Um, uh, but it is, um, I think, a masterpiece from him, as are the Masquerade and the Symphony. Mm -hmm. He never wrote anything that he didn't want to write for wind band or anything else. And what's remarkable about his output is if you just look at a chronological listing of what he wrote, solo flute, voice and piano, piano, orchestra, wind band, um, I mean, it just changed every, every, you never find wind band, wind band, wind band, wind band, wind band. Oh, let's get, let's re replicate the cover so we can sell more pieces yeah. and give it a different title. And oh, that solemn hit. So all I'm going to do is write a whole bunch of pieces for wind band. He never did that. He, he always wrote what was um, interesting to him. And um, he was just, we were just lucky that he had this intense interest in winds, but there were lots of other composers from that period that had this interest and earlier, you know, going all the way back to Berlioz, Rimsky, Korsakoff, um, uh, Wagner, uh, mm -hmm. many others who Stravinsky. I mean, I mean, there are, people forget that wind band's been around longer than the orchestra has been around. And, <laughs> and that's uh, the orchestra was developed out of the wind band. Yeah. We, and so from the Renaissance forward. So anyway, so he he was a champion of our art, 
and he interested his friends, Walter Piston, Peter Menon, all these folks on the East Coast. You guys should write music for this. This is really something to do. And um, took us through a period where we might not have gotten as serious a look as we did if it hadn't been for his music. Yeah. To your question. <laughs> no, it's okay. That's kind of what I was asking for. So, um, well, one other thing is, um, was there any particular name that, uh, other than Persichetti, that you were trying to channel when working on Parable 9? Because you mentioned anger for, or good versus evil. And so in my mind, does that mean that you were trying to channel Stravinsky in certain parts? Like, especially with so much percussion that's going on in this piece. Because I think in Persichetti, a lot of times the percussion are less, um, I don't want to say less involved, but like in the parable, they're so structurally important to yeah. how the work goes. So how do you keep all that together? Is there a composer that you were channeling outside of? that or is not, it a clarity thing not so much i mean you know e even in the symphony well you know e even in the symphony for band well there weren't a lot of players the whole symphony mm -hmm. opened everything the percussion play at the beginning is a preview of the entire work mm -hmm. and so that that's often cited as a uh, um, very important piece for for 20th century percussionists even percussion in a wind piece even though it was just three players orchestral size percussion section right mm -hmm. uh, three players in a timpani um, um masquerade a little bit more parable a lot more and so he he kept opening that up um another person who opened it up interestingly enough was percy granger of all people yeah um, if you listen to the warriors by percy granger he puts stravinsky to shame with his use of <laughs> Stravinsky didn't use percussion very much really at all. He didn't yeah. really change the landscape as much as some of these other folks did. But he just made the instrumentalists feel like percussionists. Exactly. Yeah. And um I, I'm just about to do my Stravinsky unit uh, with my Winlet class tomorrow. And um uh we always look at all the wind pieces, the the, the mass, the piano concerto, the symphonies of wind instruments, the octet, the soldat, sold out, but then we also watch the rider spring mm. just say to everybody put your hand up when the strings come in i mean wow. it's a wind piece yeah <laughs> it's a wind piece you know um, that's funny and he has huge impact on on the wind sections mm. uh, and he he had this intense interest even his uh um circus march um of all things um was a tour de force for circus bands so mm -hmm. um so parable, I think, was was at once symbolic of Persichetti's work. It was his last big wind band piece. He did write yes. a choral prelude after that that's, that went back to kind of a, more of the church choral preludes. But it was his last big piece. And I think it shows a growth, uh, or not so much that he's moving away from the earlier pieces, but he continued to explore the sounds palette that he the sonics and sound palette that he wanted to um, uh, remind us we we could make, mm -hmm. you know, we could we could work in, and um, he stayed. I think he stayed uh, a leader all the way through all of that. Yeah, I, I want to tell you one other thing. He uh, while he was at Wisconsin, we scheduled uh, um, 
a lecture for him in the entire college uh, school of music. So all the music majors came. And here's Persichetti on stage with a blackboard and his and a and uh, grand piano. And um, he gave a lecture on the materials of the 20th century composer. And so um, it really wasn't a lecture, it was a construction. So he started by saying, um, I introduced him and then he started by saying, well, let's, let's write a piece together. And the board was there and he said, so give me some notes. And so people in the audience, you know, oh, I'm gonna really stump in C double sharp. F flat, right? Uh, so he's writing these things on the board, you know, and we're going, okay. And so he comes up with like a seven, six or seven note thematic group of notes. He says, okay. And he's, he's tapping the chalk on the board and he's going, that's good. Now, what else do we need? What's missing here? What's missing here? He kept saying to the group and they all kind of sat there and stared at him, all like 400 of them, you know? Yeah. And he, and he says to them, very typical sense of humor, is there a music school near here? <laughs> What's missing? What's missing? And finally, someone wow. gets rhythm. He goes, okay, good for you. So he, he puts, give me some rhythms. I put some rhythms on the board. He said, okay. And then he sat down at the piano and played for 20 minutes. <laughs> a, a, theme and, a theme and variations, like Masquerade, like Parable. And when he finished, people were stunned. First of all, he was a massively uh, gifted pianist. And he, and he told everybody his wife was even better than him. And she was, Olga Smirnoff. Wow. She came with him. The piano department was so excited to have her. So when he finished, everybody was just shocked because each variation was totally different, a different compositional technique. Twelve mm. tone, theme of variations, um, uh, polytonal. I mean, it just went on and on. So someone raises, raised their hand and said, well, you, can you remember any of what you just played? He said, only the good parts. <laughs> like in the fifth variation where I did this. And he started wow. playing it. And, wow. maybe, and the eighth variation where I did this. And he started playing it. Everybody just. That's was blown. so cool. Whoa. Yeah. So it led, I mean, this idea that he was somehow, some people will say this and I want to punch him. Oh, he's just a band composer. Oh no, <laughs> he taught so many important people at Juilliard through the years and really knew what was going on and studied composition. Um, and so Parable, I think was a outcome of uh, a little more dissonant, a little more adventurous for him, a little more outside his style, but maybe it was where his style had evolved to. Yeah. And this that's is, okay. This is a good place. So part of the reason I, um, I put Persichetti uh, right up next to the next one is I figured you might be able to pull some conclusions between Dahl and Persichetti. Oh. So we're going to talk about the Sinfonietta next, I think. And Sean's got that one. That um, is correct. I do have that one next. And specifically done, Mary. Yeah, that, that, was, <laughs> that was very Thank well you. done. I tried. Um, we're going to talk about the Sinfonietta uh, by Ingolf Dahl. And, and, you know, first of all, I didn't know that you were conducting this recording. I was like, hold up. This recording is on Spotify. Um, so I'm so glad that we're able to talk about something that you did. Um, you know, it's interesting. Mary was able to really isolate what Persichetti has really done. Um, but it's also interesting because, you know, I was able to play music for brass instruments 
by him at Swanee, actually where me and Mary met. Oh yeah, um, I remember that happening. We, yeah, we did we did the last movement of it. Um, but I remember it being just one of those things where when you go along and you play it, it just, it felt different. And something that I was interested was about how, um, what, so what kind of composer is Dahl? Hmm. Well, I think uh, in the wind band world, um, one of the most important composers we have and it's funny that it could be just in one piece, but it's really, it's in two pieces, the saxophone concerto and then the symphonietta. Interestingly, he wrote the saxophone concerto first uh, for Sigurd Rascher. And um, uh, it was a huge piece, 35, 40 minutes long. And um, <clears throat> uh, he felt later that it was too long. So he extracted material from it, set it aside which later became the Dahl Sinfonietta. He used it later. Um, and Sigurd Rascher continued to play the full 35 minute piece his whole career. He, he didn't want to shorten it. And, um, but Dahl withdrew it for everybody but him and uh, uh, redid it. And then of course uh, did the Sinfonietta later. Um, um, Ingolf Dahl was teaching uh, on the West Coast at USC and uh, influenced a lot of people. We're doing a piece right now, which we'll record later this this month, by Robert Lynn, who was a was a uh, colleague of his at on the faculty at USC at the time, and um, who uh, was highly influenced by him. Um, Dahl was kind of it was like a connoisseur's um, reputation. I mean, people who knew him and knew what he was doing really admired him, but he wasn't as nationally known at the time that, that they went to him for the Sinfonietta. Um, but when I was in school, it was new. I think I played one of the, maybe the third performance, third or fourth performance of it. And um, I was on the West Coast, so it was, I mean, everybody was just uh, unbelievably moved by the piece. And even though it's, uh, serial music, you would never figure that out by listening to it. And um, he, um, and of course it would make sense that he was influenced a bit by that because Schoenberg was just down the road uh, teaching. And so he, he was one of those who, who adapted the technique somewhat to get to a more tonal look um, or listen. Um, I was at the premiere tour of the piece. The Michigan band was touring California with Bill Ravelli. And I went to their concert in Redlands, University of Redlands, and heard them play this piece. And I was so, they ended the first half with it. And I was so taken by that, I left the concert hall. I, I said, I don't want to hear anything else. That's it. I don't, because the second half was Till Oil and Spiegel or something, you know, it was this giant transcription. And I just thought, well, I, you know, I know what that's going to sound like. I, but this was new to me and it was very uh, exciting being a clarinetist, you know, the wonderful clarinet cadenza in it for the whole clarinet section, um, which was kind of an earmark in the Michigan band, right? They used to all 25 of them used to stand up and play Baber at some point during the, you know, concert. Um, 
so it, it really struck me as having great formal construction, almost neoclassic in a sense. And a, uh, he himself talked about it as a small symphony, hence the title Sinfonietta. And um, uh, one of the other things that, uh, as I studied it later, that got to me was his description. He tells the story that um, Honegger once went to Stravinsky and asked him, Honegger wrote King David, which was a piece for winds and choir. He was commissioned to write it. And he went to Stravinsky and said, I've never heard of this odd combination of instruments before. What should I do? You know, and, and Stravinsky's advice to Honegger was, you should write uh, this piece as if this odd group of instruments was what you always wanted to write for. And then, Dahl tags onto that and says, and indeed, this piece ended up being the piece that I always wanted to write. And for these odd wind instruments, right? This band thing. So uh, he loved the piece. He felt it was a masterwork, one of his most important pieces. Um, as it turns out, there's a North Texas connection. And that's really weird. But when I first got here, I was uh, standing backstage at a concert. We we're getting ready to play. And our one of our colleagues here, Larry Austin, was a composition teacher here in electronic primarily, but did some other things. He was responsible for editing the big Ives symphony that everybody, every major orchestra plays. Larry's the guy who brought, who finished it and brought it to life. But so Larry's standing backstage with me and we're doing a piece of his on the first half that's electronic four speakers in the hall and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And um, he said, oh, I see you're doing the doll. I said, yeah. He said, I commissioned that piece. <laughs> I said, what? I mean, this is right before I'm going on stage. I, I didn't want to go out, but wait a minute. You did what? And he said, yeah, I was a, a community college band director in California. My, one of my first jobs, I taught composition and did the band. And I was in CBDNA and we were at a meeting and they said, well, who should we commission? And he said, oh, I said, well, Ingolf Dahl, he's so fantastic. So Larry knew him as he was like a composer's composer. So Larry knew him and uh, they bought it. C CBDNA California uh, Western Division commissioned the piece and we wouldn't have it if it hadn't been for uh, for Larry. So I thought that was just really interesting. Um, but cool. a very important piece. I mean, if I had, if I could only take three pieces, it'd be one of the pieces. I mean, a right. very important piece. Um, so glad that you were also to bring up maybe his brother, Roald Dahl. No kidding. Not really, not no relation at all. Um, uh, and it was interesting because I was like, are they related? And actually Roald is English and, um, Ingolf is German. So I, I felt like that was definitely the de designation. Something also interesting too that I found out about Dahl was that Dahl also wrote for the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh. exactly. Yeah. Did so? Do you feel like? I mean, it's interesting because um, it's interesting to see serialism in television and and sort of in some sort of media. Um, do you think maybe that impacted the way that he wrote? There. Well especially Twilight Zone, um, maybe, 
I mean, is, could there be a more appropriate uh, <laughs> subject matter to, to throw some, you know, I throw serialism at. I often believe people, you know, in programming for the Lone Star Wind Orchestra here in Dallas, we're always concerned about scaring our audiences. You know? <laughs> so there are pieces we say, oh, that's a Lone Star piece. Or there are pieces we say, oh, no, you could never play that piece for Lone Star. For instance, Parable 9, <laughs> if I programmed that downtown, uh, I'd be in big trouble. I mean, the audience would just be, what? You know, they, they'd let me know. So there's certain pieces that work. Oh, if we do a John Williams concert, we're going to pack the hall in uh -huh. June. I mean, no problem. But there can be some really strange music in John Williams that they'll accept or in Twilight Zone because of what they're seeing. Uh -huh. And, and uh, you know, if you think about how scores can be very, I mean, even Leggetti can be used in in sci-fi uh 2000 what was it 2000 2001 yeah Space i mean you can have this unbelievably strange music and everybody just calmly sits there and and lets it wash over them because they have a visual um reference point now this is kind of interesting because now haven't we gone to this almost exclusively it's like nobody wants to buy a cd anymore they want to see the performance they want to they want to have a visual uh, uh, option. Music video. Yeah, music yeah. videos, right? And even Julie Giroux's new symphony called the Big Blue Marble. It's gonna it's gonna premiere next month. Um, I'm looking at it for a performance in Japan this summer. Um, lots of video with it, as you might expect. Shots of the Earth and of the city. I mean, there's there's a video that rolls the entire symphony, and so this connection of visual to um, uh, to sound. Now, when the composer specifically wants to do that, I love it. I'm kind of there with Leonard Slack. And when when everybody's trying to do something visual with everything, just, you know, come on, let's just listen to the Beethoven Seventh Symphony, for goodness mm -hmm. sake. We really need to roll a, whatever that's been created to it. But but people are trying so hard to get people into the concert halls that they're they're coming up with all sorts of new ways to, to pull them in uh, and reach out to them and their world rather so maybe maybe twilight zone uh, had impact um i you know i guess what i'd say about that is for a creative artist anything they do becomes part of their dna you know so if they're if they it's possible that those could have and one could influence the other or vice versa you know what's also interesting too is i know we talk about this a lot in music but the ending of this piece just ends so simply. It's just like a, plum. you know, it's so interesting. We talk about endings of music being just one of these like grandier things, but, but the end of this um, symphonietta, does it, does it, does it feel like an end or does it just want you to like want more or does it does it just kind of just like, I guess I'm wondering, like, what is your take on the ending of this piece? Well, you may or may not know this. That there is an alternate ending that the publisher oh. that the publisher demanded. Big, loud alternate ending. Hated, <laughs> yes. but delivered. Right. You know? And yeah. um, uh, he talked about, he, he revealed his knowledge of the serenades <clears throat> um, of harmony music in the 18th century. He wanted this to be like, uh, like you come to the piece and you leave the piece. And so he wanted this arch form with the trumpets at the beginning and at the end, kind of in an, an 
in an enunciatory way, introducing the body of the work and um, the three trumpet soloists off stage. Uh, and so he wanted to take you back to where he picked you up on this on this tour. And so um, and it broke his heart to write this other ending. And I don't know anybody who plays it. If you study anything about the piece, um, I always play it so the players can hear it and go, Ugh, what the heck is that? You know, big flamboyant kind of wham, bam. Everybody knows that band piece has to end loud. And um, that was another beautiful thing about this piece was that he he said, no, it doesn't. I'm going to end it the way I, I want it to end, you know. So pretty much uh, nobody uh, does it that way. One interesting thing about the sax concerto. Um, oh, I can't remember his name. Saxophone teacher at Manhattan School of Music who did such great work in his dissertation. It'll come to me. My, I'll, I'll think of it. But anyway, um, I had mentioned this this uh, saxophone version. Um, everybody had gone to the new version. Score and parts to the old version were lost. Nobody knew where they were. And um, uh, he are tracked you, are you, them. Are you Go talking ahead. about Paul Cohen? Yes, Paul. Thank you. Okay. Paul, yeah. he, he did it. His dissertation is amazing. Anyway, he happened to go to the, I think it was the free library, public library in Philadelphia, and asked about it. And they said, oh, yeah, we have, we're getting ready to throw these out next week. These parts and the score, and do you want them? And he went, oh, my God, you just solidified my dissertation absolutely <laughs> and he got the score in parts and was able to then make a direct comparison to the revised version in this version and to also see what was pulled out and to also realize where that shows up in symphonietta so he really solved a lot of problems in this chain of events and um, just by luck it didn't end up you know wrapping fish in the in the meat market or something, you know, I mean, uh, it, it was just a great find. But um, I think I think it's a very important piece still and very forward looking. You play the piece, and you don't feel like you're playing an old piece. You know, mm -hmm. you play. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to mention a composer. But anyway, there's some pieces that feel like you know, important music for the 50s or important music for the 60s. But this piece still is relevant and fresh, yeah. you know, in the, yeah. in the next century, which yeah. is what a masterwork's supposed to be able to do. Right. And, and you know, what's interesting too, is I, I felt like I could, I could make some comparisons to other composers due to listening to Ingolf Dahl. Like I felt like maybe I could hear a little bit of William Schumann in there because of the angularity of some of the phrases um so i so i wasn't sure if like one of my first question being uh what you thought of ingolf Dahl as a composer um any other similarities between other composers between him and maybe ingolf well even though he's german i think the piece sounds very american yeah i, I think it does and therefore yeah. that turns on the copeland light and um uh, schumann of course um, the neoclassicists, you know, um, uh, interestingly, um, yeah, I was trying to remember uh, some of the other pieces, but um, I was involved in commissioning Ernst Krennic 
his dream sequences. Um, I was I was the driver. Uh, not not much more important than that. But I drove uh, four of us to uh, um, Palm Springs to meet with him at his home when uh, CBDNA had decided that, geez, Ernst Krennic's in his 80s. We don't want to miss the opportunity to get a full band piece from him. He had written some earlier pieces in the 30s and was involved in the Donaueschingen Commissions of 1926 with Hindemith. But we went to his home and we were kind of filtered. Uh, we met on the patio first. And by the way, it was Robert Reynolds, Frederick Fennell, myself and Bill Nichols. And uh, we were all in California for some reason and drove over to Palm Springs to, to, to talk with him. And um, there's, there's a moral to this story. I'll get to it quick. But so we're, we get there, we're on the patio and his wife comes out, serves us um, lemonade and um, she and Ernst meet us and we're sitting outside. And I think that was a pre-screening. If we were goofy, he wasn't going to let us into his house. <laughs> so we talked with him for a while and he got that we were pretty serious. We had brought some scores with us of certain pieces that we wanted him to see to give him an idea. And um, uh, uh, and we uh, were invited in and down to his studio downstairs. On the way down the steps, I'll never forget it. There's a picture on the wall of Berg, Webern, Schoenberg, and Krennic all with wine glasses in their hands and it's hitting me right between the eyes oh my god this is music history right here mm. and i i pointed to the photo and i said oh my goodness what an important photo it says that was near the time that webern was murdered and i said oh my god that's right um uh and he was there the night it happened and uh they were, it was after the war. They were all meeting in their normal composers meeting. Webern stepped outside to smoke a cigarette and an American GI blew him away because they had gotten word that a Nazi group was meeting and he was killed. Wow. And he told us that story and I'm just, I was in shock. And then we went downstairs and listened to a lot of his music. His wife is a composer, we listened to her music. And then we came back up when we were we were getting ready to leave and we said, well, we brought some scores and recordings for you of some pieces to, uh, that you might find helpful. Schoenberg theme and variations, Dahl Sinfonietta, and uh, Husa piece. Hmm. And, um, and we offered to leave the recordings. And as his wife looked at us and said, that's quite all right. Ernst Krennic can read a score. <laughs> we said very well thank you very much that piece la later became dream sequence that was premiered mm. by baylor university at one of our conferences krennic conducting so um there was this group you know uh, and we wanted him to know that schoenberg had paid attention and Dahl had paid attention and all of these people that he would be familiar with um and um uh and we were lucky to get a piece from him, really strong serial piece. So uh, that might be, you know, there might be some connections there of all those folks in that school of thought. 
Well, uh, with that being said, uh, not, it's very hard transitioning from all of, of what you just said um, to to Frank Zappa. But yeah. um, if anyone can do it, I think Mary can. So Mary <laughs> well, it's completely different. Um, and we're going to talk about a song off of um, Uncle Meat. So if you can think of, I mean, maybe there are some comparisons between Symphonietta and Frank Zappa. Um, or maybe <laughs> Closer is the Parable, a lot of different things. But um, I, the, the moment that Frank Zappa left his mouth when we were talking about a Desert Island playlist, I was like, oh, of course, give it to me. And so um, <laughs> anyways, the one that he picked is the Dog Breath Variations. Wow, my cat just knocked over a ton of my music. Great. Uh, anyways, <laughs> it's all over my feet now. Um, I hope that wasn't heard. But um, anyways, we're going to talk about the dog breath variations as my cat just tried to do something. Um, so anyways, again, this is off of Uncle Meat. And if you guys don't know who Frank Zappa is, um, he's done a lot of different stuff. I think uh, if you were to look up the Uncle Meat album and just like look at the cover art, um, there's so much happening there anyway that, I mean, his music is... 10 times that um but anyways Un uncle meat was a 1969 um album or well it's i think there's a film um for it but um there's uh i think they did like four albums between 1969 and 70. it was kind of a crazy amount so um just a little bit of background um, so Frank Zappa, um, was always interested in film and, um, so the Mothers of Invention, um, I think this Uncle Meat album was the first one in terms of, like, film versus science fiction and road stories versus, like, the personal identity of the band. Um, and so, uh, it, the CD, it's like the album itself has a lot of different styles in it, um, orchestral symphonies, there's some free jazz, uh, there's rock and roll, I think there's doo-wop on it too. Um, and then there's even like spoken word segments, uh, says featuring Susie Cream Cheese. Um, and one thing that uh, I'm sure we'll talk about is there's a lot more percussion on Dog Breath Very, well, uh, on Uncle Meat than there has been in um, previous Frank Zappa. So, uh, Professor, tell me why Frank Zappa was one of the names that you had to have on your island playlist. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I love I love composers who are sacrilegious um, and who who just do what they have to do. It's like you be you. <laughs> we were talking <laughs> about earlier. I mean. Um, he had such a, a varied interests and was willing to take on, uh, for lack of a better term, classical commissions. Um, Envelopes and Dog Breath Variations, these two uh, pieces that I recorded, um, were written for the Netherlands Wind Ensemble, of all mm -hmm. things. Wow. And, and uh, they, commissioned, they commissioned the pieces. And um, uh, the NBE, I've got a picture of them right here on my wall. Um, they were pretty much a group of about 13 or 14 players. I mean, they, uh, the Grand Partida was kind of the biggest group they put together, which was 13, mm -hmm. right? And on their tours, um, they were hoping to have a piece, especially an American tour from Zappa. 
And so when the pieces showed up, they were written for far greater size, uh, uh, far greater instrumentation, uh, bigger than they could uh, take on this tour. So they had to restructure them to get mm -hmm. them to be played by 13. And they did. Oh, okay. So, um, but that left the originals kind of sitting on a shelf at Barking Pumpkin uh, Publishers. <laughs> and um, one of my graduate students, when I taught at Cincinnati, got, got interested in these pieces, Patrick Brooks. And he, uh, he called them and started negotiating with them about what would it cost to rent these pieces and, and um, called the publisher. And the funny thing was they had never been rented. So they didn't wow. know. They said, what do you think would be fair? You know, <laughs> they're going, we don't know. Uh, That's hilarious. And we we're back and forth, you know. So I think we ended up getting them very cheap. And um, uh, so he got them. And as we together looked at them, I said, we've got to play these. These are just fantastic. Yeah. For one of the reasons you mentioned that the electronics and the um, percussion, it's almost like a gamelan, some of the percussion yeah. sounds. Very interesting, very, very world music. Lots of medical or uh, yeah. metal, metal, yeah. not medical. And wood sounds and, you know, membranophones and metallics and, and very interesting. So uh, we ended up doing them as a pair because they were short. And Uncle Meat appears in the dog breath variations. Uh, it's mm -hmm. one of the, it's one of the uh, diversions that goes on. Uh, yeah. And he actually says Uncle Meat there. I mean, and these are tunes that he used in the rock band, but he revisited uh, them and added them into this instrumental stuff. Uh, since then, a couple others have surfaced. There's a piece I recorded called G-Spot Tornado, which is really a, a wind band piece as well. And mm -hmm. then um, someone's just put me on to Ravel's Bolero, uh, adapted by Frank Zappa. I'm trying to get a hold of that one. That's a good one. Pretty interesting. But um, I just thought it was so unique and uh, brought us uh, into a whole other world. Um, it's like when I was in school, I passed on an opportunity, stupid pass, to, to go to LA and play in Harry Parch's ensemble. Oh. And um, I just didn't have time. I was so buried with all the stuff I was doing at Long Beach. That, but I had friends that did. and. Um, that interested me too. He invented the instruments, then wrote for them. <laughs> then yeah. And so it was that kind of being on the fringe that always interested me. New music always interested me. And I, I felt these pieces were um, new music. And again, I'm back to that combinatorial idea of musics bleeding into one another and, and cultures being shared and, um, uh, which is probably what what intrigues me still about wind band music. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, I think I think it was just that plus the fact that um, there was again a small tie-in to Cal State Long Beach with Frank Zappa in that uh, Gerald Strang, our chairman of the music department, who was an electronic composer, was giving Zappa lessons, and uh -huh. occasionally Zappa would come to take a lesson in the electronic studio with him. And um, uh, so, you know, when you hear that Frank Zappa's in the building taking a lesson, you go sit by the door. Yeah. 
<laughs> I was gonna say that must be so what, surreal. Yeah, what's gonna happen in there? And um and just listen. And it's the like a mad science to, lab. Yeah, same thing used to happen at Cincinnati when Kathy Battle would come back for a lesson. All the all the singers would be sitting in the hallway listening to her vocalize. <laughs> um, so the uh, it was just interested me. I new music has always been part of my life, and and I I just thought of him as a contemporary composer, you know, um, of the time, and uh, who's who wasn't defined just by one um, side of his musical output, you know? Yeah. And it's uh, one thing that I thought I'd bring up talking about Zappa is like, um, we, we've been running a uh, um, series on Joe Hisashi here on Music Speaks as well. And Joe Hisashi is also someone who dips his toes in like multiple genres of music. Mm -hmm. And um, to the way that you talk about Frank Zappa is like, I've always thought of him as, you know, he's more of a wind band or, or like he has a streak in it um, or in him of, of being a composer for a specific ensemble. Um, it's just interesting because like, I, I think that's one main difference between how we as musicians view music and um, people who go to concerts hear music. Mm -hmm. um, we often hear potential around um what is actually there and sometimes i think that's why i can't always like sit still in an elevator possibly um but zappa just there's always something new and um i uh again like i i'm not sure uh how many programs there are in the world that are are really looking for new music but um there it's just like every time you look up um like for instance, Frank Zappa or blank classical music, or you, you go and look for um, just uh, like pop artists that we would probably call pop artists. If they've ever done collaborations, most of the time it's been with <laughs> Professor Corporon, um, <laughs> which I think is super cool. So um, Professor, I wanted to talk for a minute just about the instruments that he uses, because um, I, on dog breath, I'm not for certain how much electronics are on there, but I know that like, for instance, um, it's it's more avant-garde in the choices um, across the album. And like you, you mentioned, he even puts in like Uncle Meat as part of one of the transitions. And so um, let me just read like a little bit from the album notes. Um, so the weird middle section of Dog Breath, after the line Ready to Attack, has 40 tracks built into it. Things that sound like trumpets are actually clarinets played through an electric device made by Maestro, with a setting labeled Obo de Amor and sped up a minor third with a variable speed oscillator. Other peculiar sounds were made on a Kalamazoo electric organ, the only equipment for at our disposal for the modification of these primary sounds was a pair of Pultic filters, two Lang equalizers, and three Melker compressors built into the board at Opalistic Studios in New York. The board itself is exceptionally quiet and efficient, the only thing that allowed us to pile, us, pile up so many tracks, and is the product of Mr. Lou Lindauer's imagination and workmanship. So, I mean, if, if you don't know what any of those things are, which I know very few of them, um, it sounds a lot like a math equation, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but basically they were subbing in um different sounds to create the same effects as some of the sounds that they may not be able to house in house so when you did dog breath variations did you have to do a bunch of like electronic stuff with it like and and balance all of that we, we were using synthesizers okay. we, we used what he wrote originally for and i wish i my scores in the next room i'd have to pull it down but yeah, it's okay uh, um there yeah there were i don't want to say move synthesize i'm not sure what what the keyboard players were using but there were multiple keyboard mm -hmm. players uh two i think uh, and piano um and uh they were setting there were settings uh, uh suggested in the score yeah by zappa and um uh and yes you're right there were electronics uh, ex kind of explosive boom kinds of sounds and things that happen in that uh, that they add to this. So it was that combination of electronics and acoustic in acoustical instruments. We were not doing any. The acoustic players weren't playing through any ring modulators or anything like that. They played strictly acoustically. So yeah. the electronic sounds came out of the keyboards. Okay, gotcha. And then the percussion sounds weren't weren't electronically modified either. They were just uh, uh, amplified yeah mm -hmm. yeah i've already i've been through one recording session with you and gia and the miking i i just i can't imagine trying to do zappa in the same setting like i i think that all the balance and what you'd have to do the links you'd have to go to for for true clarity i just can't really imagine like what kind of an ensemble is it full or is it chamber uh, it, it's chamber. That's and, um, Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you listened. Did you listen by any chance to the to the Cincinnati recording that we did? Yes, that's the one okay. that I found. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that was that was chamber. Um, sometime when you're back, uh, let me lay a score on you. Okay. Uh, uh, because I, I'd love to look at it again. I haven't looked at it in so long. Um, we got all sorts of questions after we released that disc and people over the years still, how do I get this? Where do I get it? And it's gotten harder and harder to get. Um, mm -hmm. This publishing company doesn't make it easy. And at the time for me, it was hard to get permission to do it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we finally negotiated uh, a really unique <laughs> deal and uh, through Zappa and um, at first, there was no, he wouldn't answer at all. And it was at a time when he was ill. But when he finally got back to us, he, he, he was concerned, they were concerned, his people and his wife, that his music was pirated so much that, ah. they, you know, more than he, he used to say, you know, I was pirated more than anybody. And that um, right. it used to make him angry. But uh, I convinced him uh, through a couple letters and things, and, and he allowed us to do it. And then when he I said, okay, what do we have to pay you now to do this? And he said, oh, let me work on that. He gets back to me and he says, okay, I need $137.27. Okay. <laughs> and we went, okay. I mean, I was expecting yeah. a 20, you know, $2,000, $3,000 fee. And he had somehow in his mind had figured this out exactly. And the 10 cents for now. cents just cracked me up when we went to the, That's when hilarious. we had to go to the, uh, the, uh, Bursar's office at the university, they said, is this for real? Is this a tax or what is this 27 cents? I said, I have no idea. Just pay him exactly what he asked for. 
And um, <laughs> it, it, that was the recording fee only. We had already paid for the rental, you know, so it was pretty funny. But um, we did at least record. I've heard other recordings of adaptations of this original. Yes. But what made this so interesting was Pat Brooks' work on finding the original parts and the original score, what he originally intended. And then Good. from there, uh, it has branched out. It's been, there's been a version for 17. There's been a version for more. There's been, as you were reading, more electronics added in. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of reconstruction of his stuff. And yeah, this this brings me to maybe the last thing we'll talk about on this part of the, the podcast. But um, so when it comes to interpretation, so you're you're on the podium and you have um, decided to program, let's say, the dog breath variations. Um, how do you and this is pretty loaded, so take it with a grain of salt. But how do you balance um, respect to the original intention versus um, interpretation as uh like circumstance yeah uh i i don't think of it as interpretation i think of it as clarification all right I sometimes like i'm trying to clarify what i believe the intent is and uh it's uh i joke about it but i'm i'm very serious about it too like sometimes I'll make a change, as you know, you've been in rehearsals where I've said, okay, I know what you're looking at, but here's what we're going to do to make that work. Yeah, and, and, it is. And then I funny. will often say after that, write your own damn piece, Corporon. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, but there are times when I will make a, a, what I think is an almost, uh, it's inaudible as a change and much more perceivable as a point of clarification for something that a composer even often does later in the piece or in another place with the same music and it is clear. Yes. And yes. sometimes you find that inconsistency. For us, much the same, uh, as you know, we work a lot on articulation. It's mm -hmm. much like a string section working on Boeing until everybody's going up or down together, you're not gonna wow. get clarity, if clarity's the purpose. And, mm -hmm. and that's the danger. Sometimes clarity isn't the purpose. And so you don't want to make it too clear if there's layer upon layer upon layer. And the goal of the composer is to create something that's unclear, like the opening of the Hindemith Symphony, where everybody's yeah. doing something different to create a sound cloud, then that's different. You don't, you don't want the clarity there. So, um, uh, so there's that side of my work. Then the interpretation side has more to do with the sound sculpting and and uh, sonics and um, clarity of uh, all the instruments that are on the page. If if I can hear everybody that's on the page, I'm happy. Yeah. And if I can't, then I start trying to figure out how to make that work. So sometimes I'll change a dynamic or or I'll uh, back something off that might say three three Fs. Uh, covering up a muted trumpet, you know. Yeah. Um, so you have to uh, trying to find the, the right, the sweet spot to make things come through. So my my theory is in the range of. That's that's the. Yeah. Those are the four words I use. Dynamics are in the range of forte. Yeah. Um, uh, articulations are in the range of staccato, depending yeah. on the period. So um, tempo is in the range of allegro. Um, mm -hmm. Even when I have a quarter equals 162 mark, I might back it off. 
so that I don't go faster than clarity. Yeah. So it just depends. And and I, I guess that's taking liberties. Occasionally, when I suggest, I, I've actually suggested a rewrite in a couple small occasions. Um, and I, I think back to an experience I had with George Walker on one of his pieces we were premiering. And it just, the more we worked on it, the more we realized it wasn't possible to do what he had written. Yeah. So I came up with an alternative and we did it in rehearsal. I think you've even been present for this. We did it in rehearsal, changed. I sent it to him. I said, would you consider this? And he said, absolutely not do what I wrote. I said, okay. Then he came, <laughs> then he came to the, to the premiere or to the rehearsals, the workshop before the premiere. And he said, he heard us working on it. He said, you know, that change you sent me, I'm, I'm down with it. Let's do it. Because it just it just was better. And what yeah. I was trying to do is say to him, if we're struggling with this, there's going to be an awful lot of groups that are going to struggle with this. And it may be yeah. the difference between them deciding to play it and not play it. That's mm -hmm. a really one important six, one, two bar thing because it just yeah. can't be done. So um, that's always a possibility. You know, composers always write things that are maybe uh you know, we're playing a piece right now where the composer wrote clarinets off the instrument at one point. Yeah. You know? But, and note that <laughs> there should be a clarinet invented that would play that note. That's, they're trying to, you know, they, they're, mm -hmm. they're trying to get us to do it. But um, anyway, so you, no, try, so in that respect, that's kind of, you know, it, it's a hot potato. But I guess as I've gotten older, I'm less concerned. If someone tells me no, I, I, I go with their, um with their instruction most of the time yeah yeah <laughs> no it, it's just it is interesting and uh, as someone who um is quite interested in um the world of, of wind band conducting and what uh direction that the field is just seeming to move in um i do like as a performer in your ensemble i do appreciate how you um manage all of the those changes and stuff it, it's it's quite interesting to watch um and and truly like the clarity is something like if if a conductor is going to be the um judge and jury of anything it is how the ensemble should work or can work and so it's it's quite um fitting um that clarification is what you're looking for. I like that. That's neat. So, but well, anyways, yes. I was just going to say, sometimes, you know, you run into an immovable object uh, and, and, um, uh, and in those cases, you know, you have to honor the creator and just understand that it's going to sound uh, a certain way and, and you try to make the best of it. Um, mm -hmm. But um most of the time I find the composers, I'm the living composers that I'm working with today are, um, are open to discussion about mm -hmm. things. Um, and you know, Mike Doherty comes and wants to do a workshop on the piece. He's wide open. He's got a score right there and it's yeah. ready. And if he hears something he likes, he'll change it in the score. He wants to capture it. Um, I've, I've found certain composers, most composers being willing to consider it and then um, it opens a discussion. Uh, mm -hmm. The ideal way to do things would be to have a workshop on every new piece, you know. Yeah. You're standing okay. there 
with a score and you can exchange ideas and have the time to do that. And, um, and sometimes collectively you solve a problem um, and they, they hear it and watch it and, um, uh, and make a change based on mm -hmm. what they're seeing. Sometimes when they're writing at their desk and their metronome sticking, or like John Mackey, he's writing on his computer and the computer can play anything he writes down. Mm -hmm. um, you have to see it transferred to humans and, and how that's gonna work and if it really can be done. It's yeah. the biggest mistake young composers make because they're all writing on their computers and they write these things that are impossible to play yeah. and then are just shocked that it doesn't work when they show up, can you read my piece? Hmm. And, um, and it's the, the practicality of it, the importance of them getting to see a piece come to life, hear it come to life, but also yeah. see the players struggle with it is, is how you get better. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to take our first break. Um, and the second half won't be nearly as long, maybe. We'll see. We got some good stuff on the second half. But again, we're going to just take our first break, uh, sponsored by our friends at Anchor. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com and search Music Speaks Podcast to find ways to reach out to us. And you'll find our, our social media and, and ways that you can contribute to this podcast, as well as uh, when we take our second break, you'll hear all those handles. So again, don't go anywhere and we'll be right back. Thank you, Professor Corporan. And next time we will continue his musical selections. And with me, as always, is Mary Haddix and Hunter Zagorna. And keep listening to what you love. <laughs>